0: Well, this morning we have a very exciting text to go through in the book of Romans. Why don't you open to uh, Romans 14 right now? And we are going to be looking at Romans chapter 14, verse 1 through till 15:7. So this is a very long uh, scripture passage, which means that I'm not going to be able to do it justice. It's one of those sermons where uh, all of these verses need to be preached together. And yet, to preach them all together, it's just impossible to get to the bottom of it. Uh, I take some solace in the fact, though, that were I to preach on these verses for 10 hours, we would just be getting started. So, whether I'm going to keep you for an hour or 10 hours, we're just getting started. Because the very nature of the text is that it does not resolve things for us. It's one of the most frustrating texts for us because we just want the answer. We want to know, is this permissible or not permissible? Is this what we ought to do or not to do? And this text says, I'm not gonna answer those questions for you. And so we who want to know what does the Lord require of me will be frustrated by this text. So in some ways, the only way to preach this text is to fail in, in every effort. Uh, but in failing, succeeding to do the very thing that the text is trying to do, which is to invite us into a relationship with God where it's not based on rules, it's based on love. How do you respond to a God who has loved you to the point of sending his son to die for you? You can't just keep some rules and call it even and so this is one of those texts that i'm so thankful for but you need to work with me and we need to as always lean into the holy spirit to help us one other disclaimer before i get started is we all come from different faith backgrounds church backgrounds personal convictions and so on we bring different baggage into this family of faith here at south shore which means that uh we're going to struggle over different things some things are going to be easier for some and more difficult for others i'm hoping in this in this text to give you enough variety of examples that hopefully will touch on one of your problems (laughs) But these are only exemplary, and uh, if you have any questions about your particular hang-up, then you can come and talk to me or one of the elders or talk about it amongst yourselves after. What we're trying to get here are principles, principles for how to live a Christian life. This sermon is based upon last week's sermon. So last week's sermon is crucially important. If you weren't here, that's okay. I'll just try and and catch you up very briefly. But do go back and listen to it, and these two sermons have to be understood together. Last week, the main point of the sermon and the text was we as Christians are to fulfill the law. There are 613 laws in the Old Covenant, and we are to fulfill every one of them. Now, we stopped short last week of talking about how to do that and all of the, perhaps we might call them exceptions. Uh, In fact, we drilled as hard as we could down into, we keep every law, whether it's a sacrificial law, a law about priesthood, law about sexual purity, law about... um, how to live with one another. We keep all of the laws. One thing I didn't say as clearly as I wanted to is uh, all of the laws are moral. It is a moral issue to keep the law. God doesn't give you an amoral law, a law that has no morality attached to it. So we cannot chop the law up into different categories. All of the law come with morality. It is all about living holy lives to be holy as God is holy. Last week, we did note that some laws are easy to understand whether they're in the Old Covenant or New Covenant context. So, for example, in verse 9, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Those are fairly easy to understand. Or down in verse 13, uh, do not participate in orgies or drunkenness sexual immorality or sensuality quarreling or jealousy those are all very easy to understand laws right we all understand those things are bad don't do them so that's where paul starts he says you need to fulfill the law and all of these laws and expectations from the old covenant are still operative in the new covenant and those are some examples that he gives we also talked about some other laws that I think are fairly straightforward to bring from Old Covenant to New Covenant but weren't in the text. We talked about the sacrificial system. Do, do we live under a sacrificial system? Can we worship God without a sacrifice? The answer is no. It's a blood sacrifice. We are still under the, the blood sacrificial system but we don't bring sheep, goats, and rams or bulls to worship. We bring the blood of Jesus Christ. So some of those laws are fairly easy actually to conceptually bring into the new covenant. Uh, Another one that we talked about was the high priesthood. Do we still have to be, is our relationship with God still mediated by a high priest? Yes. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He's ascended to heaven. He sits at the Father's right hand to intercede for us as our great high priest. So again, fairly easy to bring that into the new covenant context. But there are other laws that are more difficult to understand in a new covenant context. It's not as easy. For example, this is two examples. The first two come in the text today and I'm going to add some more. How does one fulfill the Sabbath? Last week we affirmed we must fulfill the law. Well, how do you fulfill the Sabbath? Do we fulfill it just like old covenant Jews do? How does one fulfill the food laws? Certain foods are unclean, certain foods are clean. Kosher, can we mix meat and dairy, for example? How do we fulfill that? If, if we're saying that we have to fulfill all of the laws, well, what about those laws? It's not as easy to understand. Let me add a, a few more from Leviticus 19, 26 to 28. What about eating red meat? Is that permissible? Can you get a medium rare steak from the keg? Or are you breaking the law? Uh, what about fortune telling nathan what about shaving your beard (laughs) what about getting tattoos there's there's laws for all of these things what about women wearing pants what about finding a bird's nest What about building a fence on your roof or planting a garden with more than one kind of seed, plowing with mixed livestock, mixing fabrics in the clothes you wear? Do you have a cotton polyester blend? What about wearing tassels? There's laws for all of these things. And and what I said last week and affirmed this week, what the Bible teaches is we are to fulfill them all. But how? How do we do that? What do we do with these laws? How do we fulfill them? That's what today's text is all about. And I'm going to invite you to stand as Peter comes to read this text. This is God's Word from Romans 14, verse 1 through 15, 7.
1: As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin." We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God.
0: And this is the Word of God. Thank you, Peter. Let's pray. God, I I seek your help for me and for us. Help me to speak clearly. Fill my mind with clarity and sharpness that I may explain this passage accurately for your glory and for the building up of the church. We pray for your Holy Spirit to minister and to teach each one of us, each one of us at a different place for receiving this text this morning. I pray that you would unite us in... uh, in the point of this passage, which is that we are to fulfill the law. So Lord, as we endeavor to fulfill the law, give us understanding and help us to live by faith according to our conscience. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Please be seated. It's so easy in this passage to get caught in the weeds. If we were to go through it verse by verse, line by line, word by word, uh, it would first of all take months. And secondly, we would actually probably do a worse job of understanding what Paul is trying to say than if we just step back from it and ask the question, what does he mean? So this morning, a little bit differently, we're going to take our content from the passage without breaking it into smaller bits. And, and if you think about it, that's the way most of the, the New Testament should be read and understood anyway. Uh, these were letters written to churches, read all at once to be understood in whole, not in pieces. Does anyone know what the Mishnah is? The reason I bring it up is because this is our Mishnah. The Mishnah is a document or a series of documents written in the 3rd and 4th centuries by rabbinic Jews uh, to try and help them to understand how do they fulfill the law. It's a collection of common law, more or less, different applications of the law To, to the uneducated onlooker such as myself. It just looks like thousands of additional laws. So you have the 613 laws of the covenant that are inspired by God that we're not disputing. But like us, the rabbinic Jews, after the temple had been destroyed, they were struggling to understand what keeps them together as a people. And, and Judaism became a, a, a collection or a, a, the worship of God through the book. And keeping the law became extremely important, even maybe more so than in the, the time before the temple had been destroyed. And so the question that they had to answer was, well, how do we keep these laws? Obviously, there's more to these laws than what is written in each law. Each law, they observed rightly, has a depth to it and can be applied in different ways. And so the Mishnah is a way of saying, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about the other? And well, if we apply this law here, then it would look like this. And if we apply that law there, it would look like that. Well, what about this situation? What if we change the scenario just slightly? Does it still apply here? And so they're going through and they're thinking about every conceivable way that you would use the law for life and practice. And this is our Mishnah. So we take all these volumes of case law, of this scenario and that scenario, and we put it into today's reading. This is how God inspired Paul to answer the question, how do we fulfill the law? We don't need a Mishnah. We need this. This passage uses, well, not compared to the Mishnah, but for us, it uses a lot of words to say three fairly simple and straightforward interrelated things. And these three statements that we're going to explore summarize what the rabbinic Jews were trying to do with the Mishnah. That is, apply the law to every avenue of life. So their impulse was good. I just want to affirm that. The impulse of writing the Mishnah was good. They recognized that the laws themselves have a multiplicity of applications. And so they tried to get an exhaustive catalog for how to apply the law to their life. Impulse was good. But I'm so thankful that because of the gospel, we have this instead of that. Statement number one, and this is really important because what often happens when we come to this text Romans fourteen one to fifteen seven is we say we don't have to keep the law. But that's not the context of this passage. In order to understand Romans 14, 1 to fifteen seven, we have to start with this statement: we are to fulfill the law. The macro structure of the book of Romans. If you remember, chapter 12 takes us into, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Respond to the gospel. Respond to the saving acts of God through Christ. By living for Christ, one way that we worship God is by fulfilling the law. So there's no other place to start on this passage than to affirm we are to fulfill the law as we said some laws are easy to understand some laws are easy to to know how we are to fulfill them in a new covenant context Uh, we run them through the gospel and we come out on the other side and they're not that different for example as i said adultery adultery is adultery in the old covenant or the new jesus dying on the cross does not give us license to commit adultery that makes sense If God was against adultery in the Old Covenant and he sent Jesus to die for our sins, he's not all of a sudden in favor of adultery in the New Covenant, that's easy. Same with murder, same with stealing, same with coveting, same with orgies, Same with drunkenness, same with sexual immorality, sensuality, quarreling, and jealousy. These are all the examples from last week. Don't do those things. God was against them in the old covenant. The death of Jesus Christ does not make God all of a sudden in favor of those things. Sin then, sin now, don't sin. But if anyone does sin, they've got a savior. It's a big difference. So number one, though, is fulfill all the laws. Some are easy to understand. Other laws are not easy to understand and to know how we are to fulfill them in a new covenant context. The two examples that Paul gives in this passage are food laws and Sabbath, which we'll get to after we go through summarizing the principles themselves. Those will be two of our examples. But let us begin here. We are to fulfill the law. Which law? All the law. All of it. Fulfill the Sabbath. Fulfill the food laws. Fulfill the, the laws of the Old Covenant. All of them. Second statement. We are to fulfill all 613 laws of the Old Covenant based upon the Gospel, our understanding of the Gospel, and our individual conscience. We are to fulfill all of the laws of the Old Covenant according to the Gospel. That's a a massive piece that we have to understand. The Gospel changes some things. We don't want to live as though Jesus didn't come. We don't want to live as though Jesus didn't die on the cross for our sins. So there's some, some laws in the Old Covenant that are by their very nature anticipatory of the Gospel and therefore the way we fulfill them is different. On the other side of the coming of Christ. So we fulfill all of the laws based upon the gospel. We have to run all of the law through the gospel. Then the second part is really important too. Our understanding of the law and the gospel. Some things just aren't that clear. And so we wrestle to understand, well, how would I fulfill this in light of the gospel? Well, do your best to understand the relationship of the law through the gospel and then fulfill it according to your conscience. That at the very end, you have to have a clear conscience before God to say, I've done my work to understand to the best of my ability, with the help of my elders and the community of faith in which I'm in, to understand how this law applies to me in light of the first coming of Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. And in light of that gospel reality, I've done my best to understand the depth of this law and how I'm to fulfill it. And therefore, I don't know if I've got it right, but according to my conscience, I'm going to exercise my faith and live this way. That's, that's our Mishnah. To live out the law according to our understanding of and application of the gospel with clear conscience because we're doing our best by faith. So, Bringing the old covenant laws into the new covenant, running them through the gospel, understanding them on the other side of the death and resurrection of Jesus requires some theological work. Not for all of the laws, but for a lot of them, it does. And so we have to do that work and we have to in doing that work as we're reading through Deuteronomy or Leviticus or anywhere in the Old Testament we have to recognize that Jesus truly does make a difference. And we need to fulfill the law in the light of the reality of the gospel. I'll give you one one quick example. We don't stone anyone anymore for any sin. Do we not keep the stoning laws then? Have cuz that's one way, right? The lazy way. I'm going to call it the lazy way. No, it might be a little bit controversial. The the lazy way is to say well we don't do that, therefore we don't keep that law. But if we do the theological work, we recognize that someone was killed for sin. So how do we keep all of the laws of capital punishment? God says, if you disrespect your father and your mother, you're to be taken to the gate and stoned to death. We don't do that in the church. So is that antiquated? Is that just, was that a law for them then and not for us now? No, we keep the stoning laws. How? Jesus died for our sins. So when you're reading through the Old Covenant and you say, wow, God was severe back then. I'm sure glad he's mellowed out in the New Covenant. He's a much kinder, softer, gentler God. It's just not true. God killed his own son for our sin. When we disrespect our parents, and that's not just like a a careless word, but it's a, a life of rebellion against the authority of parents. We don't stone you now because God killed Jesus. Do we keep that law? Oh, we keep it. And to say that we don't just undermines all that Jesus did for us. Praise be to God that the new covenant expression of the capital punishment laws are fulfilled in Christ on the cross. But let us not for a moment take the lazy way out and say, well, we don't do that now. God's changed. God hasn't changed. So that's just one example. Um, So number one, we fulfill all of the laws. Number two, we fulfill the laws according to the Gospel to the best of our understanding according to our conscience. We do the work. And we may not get it right, but God just is glad that we've tried and what pleases him is that we are making an effort to fulfill the law. The third part of this passage that is really important is we exhort one another. This is not some postmodern text that you do what you want, I'll do what I want. That's not that's not this text at all. And and we're very much in danger of reading it that way because we're living in a postmodern world where what's true for you is not true for me and what's true for me is not true for you. Paul is not opening the door to relativity here. He's not saying you just decide what parts of the law you want to keep and what parts of the law you don't want to keep. In fact, we are to exhort one another. Part of being in a faith community, uh, part of submitting to the leadership of elders is that we work together to understand how to do this and we exhort one another to fulfill the law. That's what last week's sermon was all about. You fulfill the law as an act of worship to God. But, and there's a big but here, we allow for differences of understanding and conscience. So we work together to do the hard theological work to understand how the laws are to be applied in and through the gospel according to faith and conscience But we can't be dogmatic about that which is not absolutely clear. We might disagree. When when I take a law from the Old Covenant and I filter it through the gospel, I might come out over here and you might come out over there. So long as we've both done our work to make the effort to say, well, this is the law, this is how they practice it in the Old Covenant context, now in light of Jesus and the cross... And his resurrection and his intercession, this is how I, I think I fulfill this law over here. We allow for differences of understanding, interpretation and application according to conscience. That, that's, that is, that's revolutionary that God has done that for us through Paul. Now, this is, again, one of those weak spots of this sermon is, what about this? What about that? What I am not saying is you just do whatever you want. There are better and worse interpretations of the old covenant law. Not everyone's interpretation is equal, and there is a place for saying, I don't think you've quite understood that. There's a place for for leadership and exhortation and mutual encouragement. However, it's, it's just a fact that there are some Old Covenant laws where it's just not that clear what a Christian expression of that Old Covenant law would be. And it's in those areas that we allow for differences of application. There are some things, though, that are black and white. There are some laws from the Old Covenant that are explicitly mentioned in the New Covenant, and therefore there's no wiggle room whatsoever. I'll talk, For example, homosexuality. You get this a lot. This is a hermeneutical trick, a sleight of hand, that non-Christians will do, and some Christians, unfortunately, will do to try and approve of homosexuality. Well, if you read, this is what they will say you read the book of Leviticus and you're not doing A, B, C, D, E, all the way down to double Z of Leviticus. So, why do you cherry pick homosexuality and say that that is not permitted in the new covenant? And they will accuse you of picking and choosing from the old covenant. So, do we just say, well, some Christians are okay with homosexual behavior and other Christians are not? You know? Live and let live. No. Why? Well, this is a starting point for this third point. Some laws are black and white. That is, they've been explicitly repeated in the New Testament, and therefore there's no wiggle room. In countless places, I'm just using homosexuality as an example, in countless places, I shouldn't say countless, you could count them. In several places in the New Testament, let's just take Romans 1 as an example. Homosexuality is a sin in the New Covenant as well as the Old Covenant. God hasn't given us any wiggle room to filter homosexuality through a gospel to get to, well, I don't know what to do with homosexuality. God tells us what to do with it. He says that it's a sin, whether you're Old Covenant or New Covenant. So there's no wiggle room on that one. I didn't write the Bible. I can't subtract or edit the Bible my job as a preacher your job as Christian is to read and understand the Bible so there are some things that are crystal clear black and white cannot be changed those things we can bind one another's consciences on those things are explicitly noted in the New Testament there are other things that are not explicitly noted in the New Testament And on those things, that's where the greater gray is. That's where the greater freedom to do the theological work and to apply it according to faith and conscience comes in. So we can and we must bind one another's consciences on the application of some laws. Do you know what I mean by binding a conscience? If you are deliberately breaking, not not in weakness, but in rebellion, breaking a law that is explicit in the New Covenant, in the New Testament pages. And what I'm not talking about, see, this is this sermon, right? What I'm not talking about is you're weak and you've tripped, you've fallen, you're repentant. I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about someone who comes out and says, I do not believe that the Bible says that, uh, that homosexuality is a sin. I just don't believe that. I'm not talking about somebody who's struggling with same-sex attraction. Lots of grays for people who struggle with same-sex attraction. I'm talking about somebody who comes out and says, Thus saith the Lord, Love is love, heterosexual, homosexual, in marriage, out of marriage, one partner, multiple partners. It doesn't matter because Jesus died on the cross. Somebody who is perverting the scriptures in that way, We can bind and we must bind one another's consciences on that issue and say, no. God has been clear and if you have a different opinion on this or that or the other thing, whatever it is that's explicit, church discipline will have to kick in and if you still don't repent, church discipline will have to remove you from the church. So this passage Romans 14 1 to fifteen seven does not say live and let live in the church there are some things that we can and must bind our consciences to and bind one another's consciences consciences to and it is the responsibility of the elders to see it through even if it means that someone is removed from membership okay on the other hand there are other laws where we we better not do that To try to bind someone's conscience to your interpretation and application and conscience of a particular law where it's not explicit, where it is definitely gray, would be to sin against that person and against God. So part of this discussion has to be what are the black and white laws and what are the gray laws? which we don't have time for today. I've given you a couple of examples. Homosexuality is just an example. I don't mean to go back to it all the time, but it's just because it's an important example. It is not a gray zone. It's black and white in the Bible. Old Covenant, New Covenant. Tattoos are gray zone. We're going to get to them. Food laws, gray zone. How to keep the Sabbath, gray zone. So part of the discussion is, what is black and white, and what is gray? And the way you decide between the two is, if somebody is trying to bind your conscience on on something, this is the question that you ask them. Where in the New Testament are you seeing this? And if they cannot produce a clear statement in the New Testament, you're likely in the gray. But if it's clear in the New Testament, you are in black and white. So we can bind one another's consciences on some laws, those that are black and white, but not on all. So long as we are all trying to fulfill the law in and through the gospel, that's a key part, we must bear with one another in our different opinions and interpretations and applications. Paul gives two examples. So let's start with those, and then I'm going to go to Leviticus and Deuteronomy to add a couple more examples, uh, and then it'll be like having we have nailed Jello to the wall, and we can keep talking about it. But I hope the principles are clear. What we do with the laws themselves may not be clear, but the principles I hope are clear. We fulfill the law; some are clear, some are not clear. Food laws. Take a look at Romans 14 verses two to three. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Difference of opinions as to why Paul talks about eating only vegetables. There's, there's definitely no law in the Old Testament that says you can only eat vegetables. Unless you go before Noah. So he might be using this this eating meat versus vegetables as this extreme example. Because we all know that there were food laws in the old covenant of what's clean and unclean, but but there's no law in the old covenant where it says you cannot eat meat. But if you go back to Genesis one through six, you could only eat vegetables. So I think what Paul is doing is saying some people might be so um, limited in their ability to read and understand scripture that they're still living in a pre-flood reality where you can only eat vegetables and actually there are some christians who go there now we have to be vegetarians because it was only after the flood that we were able to eat meat so on and so forth so that's their right paul says if they want to eat only vegetables and they're doing it from faith that's fine but the whole point is, Paul's getting at what's more common is the food laws. You can only eat this kind of animal and not that kind of animal. Some are clean and some are unclean, right? You can't, or or you even have combinations of food that you can't eat according to the food laws. So you can, you can drink milk, eat cheese, but you can't eat milk, or eat milk, eat cheese and drink milk while you're also eating meat, That's one interpretation of do not boil a kid in its mother's milk. So the mixing of meat and milk. You don't mix the two because, well, what if the milk you're drinking and the meat you're, you're eating are two different generations of the same herd and there's some genetic combination between the two and you're you're doing the two at the same time so just don't even do that paul's saying some people are going to interpret the law that way and they're going to be very careful about what they eat when they eat it how they eat it what combination they eat it in some people will be so extreme that they go to a pre-noah eating only vegetables reality that's what he's saying there now go down to verses 14 to 17 Paul continues, he picks it up, and he says, I know, and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that's a key part, in the Lord Jesus, right? He's, doing, he's giving us the hermeneutical shift or the interpretive shift that we need as Christians. You take the Old Testament law and you filter it through Jesus. I, am, I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ has died. Do not let what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So a bit to unpack there. First part, he says, I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. How can Paul make that move? Is he just throwing away all of the food laws? Again, remember, that's the lazy way out. I guess we can eat bacon, so there is no such thing as a food law. That's the lazy way out. That's not that's not good study of the scriptures. But why is that we can eat bacon? Well, what did Jesus say about the food laws? He says the food laws have never really been about food it's not what goes in your mouth and into your stomach and out into the gutter that makes you unclean it's what comes out of the heart now what did jesus do there did he throw away the food laws no what he told us was the purpose of the food laws The purpose of the food laws was to teach us about categories of reality. There's that what makes you unclean, there's that which is clean, and there's that which is holy. God gave Israel the food laws, not about the food, but he used food to teach about the categories of reality. So we fulfill the food laws by knowing that there is a reality of unclean. There is a reality of clean and there is a reality of holy. Now what Jesus did, though, is he says, it's not about food, it's about what's in your heart. So what did he do? All of those Pharisees that were attacking him who thought that they were clean and maybe even holy by what they ate and didn't eat, he says, well, it's not about that. You're all unclean because it's a matter of the heart they were actually not fulfilling the depth of the food laws because the food laws were not about food. They were about unclean, clean, and holy. So in the food laws, if you were unclean, there was something that you would do to move up from unclean to clean and from clean to holy. Shaving rituals, bathing rituals, blood rituals, and time rituals, all in the Old testament do we keep those yes we do how what what? tell me more about that how do you go if you're unclean because you ate something you shouldn't eat give it give it some time take a bath shave your head and you'll be clean for some other things to move up you had to actually sacrifice something so the fulfillment of these laws is to recognize that we are all unclean It's as if we had all eaten unclean food because of what was in our hearts So we keep the food laws by recognizing that we are all by nature without Christ unclean. Well how do we move into the clean category? Through these rituals. The ritual that moves us out of the unclean reality is the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. You know what's amazing about it? In the New Testament you don't get unclean clean and holy anymore you get common and holy why it's not that these three categories don't exist but the the blood sacrifice of jesus is so perfect that he he takes us from unclean to holy you apply the blood of jesus to your life and you will never be in the unclean position anymore so eat all the pork you want it cannot pollute you it cannot defile you because the blood of jesus christ has made you holy So we keep the food laws, but we recognize that the food laws were given to teach us about the gospel. And so we keep the food laws by admitting, poverty and spirit, that we're unclean without Christ, and by washing ourselves by faith in the blood of Christ, which takes us not only clean, but into a position of holiness. Do we keep the law? Yes, we keep the law. It's not about food, though. Food was just the way that Jesus or God taught us about these realities. What about Sabbath? Take a look at uh, chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind the one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord, who gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself, etc. Et it goes on. We're, we're God's servants. Do we keep the Sabbath? Let's start there. Yes. How do we keep the Sabbath? Can you shop? Some people will say yes. Some people will say No. Uh, which day should the Sabbath be? Should it be Saturday? Should it be Sunday? That, that's a part of this whole discussion. Which day are you going to pick as your Sabbath? Can you go to Swiss Chalet on Saturday or Sunday? I know a lot of Christians are going to Swiss Chalet. So obviously, according to our conscience, that's keeping Sabbath. When I was in Israel, uh, you know, because of the Mishnah, you're not allowed to light a fire on Sabbath. Now, because of modern technology, if you push a button and there's electric current, that's the equivalent to lighting a fire because there's a spark. Therefore, they cannot push buttons on the Sabbath, according to their conscience. So if you're going to get into an elevator and you're, you're on the 27th floor in Tel Aviv, how do you get up there? Do you have to take the stairs? Well, that seems like more work than pushing a button, <laughs> No, there's what's called a Shabbat elevator. You just go in and all of the floors. You, you ever see Elf where he like is in the Empire State Building and he hits all of the buttons? That's the S- Sabbath elevator. So you just get in and you stop at every floor. Because you're not starting a fire. You're just you're just resting. The point is we keep the Sabbath There are two places in the Bible where it's super clear that we are to keep the Sabbath. It's the fourth commandment in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. In Exodus 20, we keep the Sabbath to remember that we were slaves. Or no, sorry, in Exodus 20, we, we keep the Sabbath to remember that God rested on the seventh day. And in Deuteronomy 5, we keep the Sabbath to remember that we were slaves in Egypt and God has set us free. So which is it? Are we keeping the Sabbath because it's a creation ordinance that goes back to the seventh day of of history? Or do we keep the Sabbath to remember that God rescued us from slavery in Egypt? Well, both. What is the Sabbath for? The Sabbath is to rest in God, remembering that we have a God who is creator and redeemer. This is what jesus was all about they added all these unnecessary rules to sabbath keeping that he was constantly pushing against he said you've missed the point once a week we should stop to remember that god is creator and savior in new covenant also to keep the sabbath is to rest in christ we no longer work for our salvation we rest always knowing that Christ has done the work for us. It's a, it's a spiritual rest. The New Testament also talks about how the ultimate Sabbath, the ultimate Jubilee, the, the ultimate rest is coming when Christ returns and we go into the new heavens and the new earth. And until then whatever we do to keep sabbath is anticipatory the true keeping of sabbath is to be raised from the dead by the power of god to live in the new heavens and new earth forever without growing weary without growing sick and without dying so okay that's a pretty big theological idea how do you want to manifest that in your life now what paul says here is go and do that you want to ride the shabbat elevator to remember that God is creator and, and savior, do that. Or if you want to go to the park and throw the frisbee around and have a barbecue with your friends, do that. Just remember at least once a week that God made you and God saved you. So there's a lot of flexibility for how we're going to keep the Sabbath. Sabbath. In this passage, though, we also hear, right, that we are to walk in love. Someone who knows the Bible really well will, will experience a greater level of freedom in keeping the law. The more you know the Bible, the more you've wrestled with the gospel, the more you remember, well, I'm justified by grace through faith, not by works. There's nothing that I could do to throw off God's love for me he, he'll not love me any lesser anymore that doesn't give me license to sin but I recognize that all of these laws were trying to show me who God is and who I am in relationship to him and, and he sent his son to die for me and I've got great freedom in Christ I don't need to do this and this and this to please God I just need to believe that's my work my work is faith So it's incumbent on those who know justification, who know sanctification, who who are so in tune with the the mind of Christ and the heart of God that it's just natural for them to live a life that overflows with the holiness of God. Other people just don't have that, that knowledge or that maturity or that wisdom, and so they need to keep a few more rules just to have a clear conscience. And in keeping these rules, they're doing what they can do to show God that they love God. Is it legalistic? It it might be, and that's where the elders need to come in and say, you know, I think you need to just chill out a little bit. But so long as people who are keeping more rules are not imposing that on others, that's the big flip, and as long as they're growing in their knowledge of the gospel and its impact on their life, They're keeping the law according to conscience by faith to respond to who God is and what God has done. And it is important for us who are stronger in the faith to bear with those who are weaker, very gently coming alongside and saying, you know, you probably could go to the beach on Sunday. Probably could. You don't have to, but you could. To begin to nudge our weaker brothers, not, not ripping them apart, but very gently, showing them the freedom that they do have in Christ and help them to understand it in the gospel. Thus we keep the food laws and we keep the Sabbath, but how we keep these laws is a matter of conscience and faith before the Lord. Let's take a look at a few more because I'm not satisfied with food laws and Sabbath keeping. I want to talk about red meat, fortune telling, shaving beards, In tattoos for a minute. So if you have your Bibles, flip back to Leviticus 19. Before I read this, I want to exhort you to keep these laws. How you keep them will depend upon your understanding of the gospel and how you bring these laws into your life by faith according to the first coming of Christ. So let's take a look at Leviticus 19:26 to 28. You shall not eat any flesh with the blood in it. You shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes you shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard you shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves i am the lord all right let's take a look at these the inclination of the lazy christian is to say that has nothing to do with us that's leviticus but you open yourself up to the charge of how are you deciding which laws in Leviticus to keep and which laws not to? So better to start by saying, well, this is the law. This is what God has revealed. This, he, there's something about this that is pleasing to God. Therefore, we must keep it. And therefore, we have to understand not what the surface, the letter of the law says, but what's the depth of the law. This is exactly what the rabbinical Jews tried to do in the third and fourth centuries. And so what does it mean to, uh, to get a tattoo and they would have given you a thousand different scenarios. Well, in this case it's okay, in that case it's not okay, in this case. So we, wanted, we want to follow that same impulse to see that there's a greater depth to this. It's not as simple as just don't eat red meat and don't get a tattoo and don't shave your beard and so on. But what is that depth? Start with red meat. There's two things that the Bible tells us about the blood in meat. The first thing is Leviticus tells us that the life of an animal is in the blood. Therefore, you are to drain out the blood of an animal and offer it either, at one point before the temple, you had to bring it to the tabernacle and pour it out as as an offering to the Lord. Later, you draw, drain it out and you remember that, that the life of the animal is sacrificial for your own life. So you don't consume the life of that animal, but you pour it out and you remember your need for substitutionary atonement. Second thing, that well I guess we put that together. The blood uh, in the old covenant of any animal is always to be given in sacrifice to God. So what do we do with this then? Can you have a medium rare steak at the keg? I would say yes, but you might say no. For some, it will always be wrong to eat the lifeblood of a creature. And for some, you'll go back to Noah and you'll say, okay, God has moved us from a vegetarian diet. Now, since Noah, we've been able to eat meat, but God was really clear to Noah that he was not to eat the blood. I'm just going to stick with that. I'm safe. That's what God said to Noah. He reiterated through Moses. If I just follow that, I'm safe. I, I, I have a clear conscience. And if that's you, that's fine. Eat your steak well done. It's fine. For others, though, the blood of animals is no longer used in sacrifice to God. That, that there was something anticipatory of the blood of an animal, that every time an animal was killed, whether for, for a burnt offering, a sin offering, a guilt offering, a fellowship offering, or whatever, uh, it was always meant to remind us that we need to offer a sacrifice to God because of our sins. It was always anticipatory of that one true sacrifice, right? Remember what the writer of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats and rams, and, and it doesn't take away sin anyway. But God had them not eat the blood so that the blood always was a reminder for the need for sacrifice. Then we have John 6, which is why this was partly so offensive. It's not just that Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. It's drinking any blood. And Jesus there says, well, hold on a minute. You weren't to eat the blood or drink the blood of animals because that blood couldn't do anything for you. It couldn't save you. And, and there were a lot of pagan religions where you drink the blood to be cleansed. So God says, we're not going to make that mistake. Now Jesus comes along and says, okay, you couldn't drink the blood of animals or eat it in your meat, but now that I am here, I'm the real steak. I'm the real sacrifice, and you must drink my blood. So the Gospel makes a big difference. Uh, You actually abstain from eating red meat in the Old Covenant because the blood of Jesus is to be uniquely set apart. And now, every time you have a red steak, remember that Jesus died for you. So for some, you, you fulfill that law, do not eat red meat, by not eating red meat. And if that's where you're at in your conscience, that's, that's fine. For others, every time you have a piece of red meat, you remember the sacrifice of Christ. And you say, by faith, Lord, I drink your blood. Remember me in your kingdom. You pick. Fortune telling. Here, right, we're told you shall not interpret omens or tell fortunes. The meaning of this is fairly straightforward. God is to be the only source of truth and direction. You are not to go to any other spirit, any other god to try and figure out the future. God alone knows the future from the past. So for all of us, this we fulfill this by not seeking truth or direction from fortune tellers or seeking direction from the stock market numbers. Doesn't mean you can't invest, but you're not seeking You're not praying to the stock market. You're not making life decisions based on the numbers that go up and down. You put all of your confidence in the future in the Lord God. For some, we should not even read books or watch movies that depict fortune-telling. For some, Harry Potter is not an acceptable read. You cannot read it with a clear conscience. But let us never say that no Christians are permitted to read Harry Potter. For others, you can read about fortune-telling. You, you can, C.S. Lewis loved these myths filled with magic and fortune-telling. So long as you know what it is and you keep it in its proper place, you are able to, because you're not reading Harry Potter to make decisions about your life. But if you ever fall into reading Harry Potter and you adopt a fortune-telling worldview, then you better stop and go back. So there's some wisdom in knowing when to and when not to. Shaving beards and temples, right? You shall not round off the hair on your temples or mar the edges of your beard. So to keep this law, the letter of the law, you'd have a long beard. Seen beard like that before. But you would also just let the sides of your hair grow long. What's the point of this? Pagan men were often clean shaven. So God's purpose in this is very clear, to mark off visually who belongs to him. And you see this in some Amish cultures, right? There's a certain dress code because they are marking themselves off. They belong to this community, and they're fine to do that. That is okay to do that. So for some, like the Amish or Old Order Mennonites, Men should look visually different than non-Christian men. So if you're a Christian man, you need to mark it by the way you dress, the way you look, the the way you keep your hair. For others, Christian men should look different than non-Christian men. But that is determined by their character and their behavior, not by what they wear or shave or don't shave. So if you are endeavoring to look different in the workplace... You don't need to keep a long beard and stop from shaving the temples of your hair. But do the, the people you're working with notice that you're different? Have you set yourself apart? Not in a self-righteous way, but in a godly way. That's the whole point of that. Tattoos. Here it's very clear. Um, you shall not make any cuts on your body for the dead or tattoo yourselves. I am the Lord. The meaning of this, pagan worship included cutting and tattooing as a part of worship. So there are a lot of religions, just think of um, the prophets of Baal, for example, when they're trying to get Baal to send fire from heaven in 1 Kings 18. Uh, He wasn't listening, so they started lacerating themselves and cutting themselves as part of their worship. God says, I'm having none of that. You will not get my attention by cutting yourself. Other pagans would would tattoo themselves to try and get the attention of the gods. Some South, uh, South Pacific people still do that, right? Tattooing is a part of their religious expression. It's a spiritual experience for them. And God says, I'll have none of that. You're not going to get my attention by getting the tattoo. In, in, in the particular context here, it seems that there was some attachment to ancestor worship or ancestor mourning. That you would have someone in your life that died and you love them and so you would mark your body so that you would always remember them. For some it might have been because there was no hope. Death was the end. And so the only way that that person could live on would be in your tattoo. And so out of love for that person, you tattoo yourself so that they can live on if in no other way but by being a mark on your body and a memory in your mind. So, we keep these laws. Do not cut yourself as an act of worship. And that can be expanded to don't don't, uh, deny yourself of basic pleasures of life, so long as they're not sinful. But for some Christians, they'll say, well, I can't get a tattoo and have a clear conscience, because that would disfigure God's image. I'm an image bearer of God, and so I'm not going to get a tattoo. So if that's, if that's your position, th- that's fine. Don't get a tattoo if you feel that that would be in some way dishonoring God. For others, Christians can get tattoos so long as this is not part of some kind of worship or ancestor memory. We grieve when when those close to us die, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. A a tattoo for someone who has died, if, if that is all there is that remains of that person, then you really don't understand the gospel. So we grieve when those whom we love die, but we don't grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve with the hope of future resurrection. Who would have thought that that's what the tattoo law is all about? It's about getting God's attention and having well-placed expectations and hope for the future. So for some Christians, don't get tattoos. For other Christians, you can get a tattoo, so long as it's not part of your worship of God. It's going to go on, but we're out of time. Deuteronomy 22, 5 and 8 has some really interesting ones. But here's the point. We are to fulfill the law. Some laws are easy to understand. You can pick them out of the old covenant context, drop them into the new covenant context, and it's seamless. So that's good. Others aren't as easy to know what to do with, but it's explicit. So I would put homosexuality in that level. It's not actually that easy to know what to do with homosexuality, maybe because of the cultural context in which we are in. But for whatever reason, in the day and age, in the place that we live, it's not easy to know, is it really loving to say that Someone who has same-sex attraction should not act on that attraction. That feels like not loving, in our cultural context. But that's still a black-and-white law. It's God hasn't changed His mind on that. And there's all uh, all kinds of reasons I could get into. Let me just very quickly. If you if you're curious about homosexuality, talk to me. But here's the reason: is because sex is to be a picture of the gospel. And you can only picture the gospel within marriage because God is committed to the church and you have to have a man and a woman, one who gives and one who receives the imperishable seed. You can't do that. that homosexuality does not picture that and therefore God's against it. God gave us sex not to gratify our bodily desires but God gave us sex to uh, model and picture the gospel. So there's, there's a theological reason for this. But that one's a little bit harder to understand, but it's explicit in the New Testament. And therefore, we don't play with it. But there are other laws that are in the gray zone. Food laws, Sabbath, tattoos, long beards, women wearing jeans, which we didn't get to. Deuteronomy 22, five. We are to fulfill the laws. Some laws are easy. Some laws are more difficult to understand and apply. Each of us must fulfill the law according to our own understanding of the Gospel and our conscience. And we must bind the conscience of one another when it is clear. And we must bear with one another when it is not. Nudging one another along lovingly and with grace. I just want to end with this. There's something really exciting about this, I hope you see. It's not easy, but it's, it's really exciting. The law comes alive. I, in light of this, could you now go to Psalm 119 and say, I love the law of God. Why? Because the law of God is in every instance showing us something about who God is, who we are, and how He has saved us through Jesus Christ and so we are to love the law fulfill the law and get excited about the law the gospel has liberated us from the shallow letter of the law but the gospel has also illuminated the deep spirit of the law therefore as christians we don't throw it away we cherish it and we should get excited about the law wouldn't it be fun, what a great Bible study, to study the 613 laws and to go through them one at a time and say, what do we do with this one? How does Jesus impact how we fulfill this one? Now that is a fun Bible study. Maybe you'll join me. We'll leave that for another day. But we've, we've just opened the door on this. I pray that as though as much as it's impossible to exhaust this topic, that I've given you enough to understand uh, what we are to do with the law, let's pray. God, I thank you so much for uh, this passage, Romans 14:1 1 to 15.7. I thank you that it is our Mishnah. You didn't give us thousands of more applications. You just said, work it out think about Christ, follow your conscience, live by faith. Lord, we know that you have given us all of the law that we might know how to love you and love one another. Uh, So where we fall short, I pray that you would help us to more than compensate by love for you and for one another. We know that all of this is possible because of the love that you showed us in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Uh, I was thinking about a hundred things I wanted to say that I didn't say, so I could maybe do another sermon, but let me just say two things. Uh, so the first thing is important. Um, sometimes two laws come into play at the same time. So let's say, just random example, tattoos and submitting to your parents. Um <laughs> So tattoos is a gray zone law. You know, tattoos, I, I, I don't think that, it, that's a matter of conscience. But the New Testament is super clear, obey your parents. So when you have a black and white law and a gray zone law, you ha- and they're at play at the same time, You you can't cancel out the black and white law because you have trump card in your hand which is the gray law. So, if you're ki- if you're a kid, if you're a youth, you're still living at home, I don't know anyone like this and you want a tattoo, I'm just looking down. <laughs> um I just I just think it's a really helpful example. I'm not trying to l- center anyone out honestly. It, it's just a very helpful example. That's why I use it. You you start with what is clear. Uh, Now, that was the important thing. Now, the awesome thing. In uh, Deuteronomy 28, we have blessings and curses. That's part of the law. If you keep the law, you will be blessed with long life, fertility, crops, riches. Stay long in the land. If you break the law, you know, all kinds of awful things will happen to you. Um, which I don't need to go into at the end of it you'll be exiled from the land the greatest thing about fulfilling the law in and through the gospel is that Jesus Christ who kept the law the depth of the law perfectly he took the curses so we could have the blessing is there blessing and curses in the new covenant you bet We deserve the curses. Jesus took the curse, which is total abandonment by God, exile, ultimate hell. And he gives us sonship. So before we're too down on the law, we get the fullness of the blessing of the law because of the righteous acts of Jesus Christ praise God for that let me pray and then go in peace God I thank you for this morning the law and, and the gospel are really hard to understand the relationship and I, I have not done it justice But God I do pray that you would help us to understand it and live it out in love and faith And most of all, Jesus, we are so thankful that you took the fullness of the curse for lawbreakers. You became a curse so that we might receive the blessing. The inheritance which falls rightly only to you, you have shared with us. We will be raised from the dead in glory. We will live forever. We will see the face of God. We will reign in every age to come Oh, God, thank you. Now I pray, help us to live between now and then lives of worship. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Go with peace and with great joy. God bless you.